Toshi and I have been friends for almost 20 years. I met him on a beach in Cape Cod during a Psytrance party. He was an established VJ in the Boston scene, and I was just trying to figure out how that whole world worked. He brought me into the fold and taught me about the software and the methods that people were using to mix visuals live to electronic music. We've stayed in touch throughout the years, both moving to the Bay Area, both pursuing our careers, watching each other grow and mature on our own respective paths. And when he agreed to do an episode of the Luminous Arts, I was stoked. And even though we couldn't sit down in person, it was so good to catch up. Toshi is an amazingly deep thinker and a very intelligent guy. Our conversation was fun because it let both of us go deep on some really important topics relating to the ethics of the use of technology. He works for the Institute for the Future, a nonprofit focused on just that. He runs a department there that allows him to explore, among other things, the various ways that VR can be used to generate positive change in the world. I think you're going to dig this conversation. It winds its way through the world of immersive new media art, through the role of social media in society, and into our responsibility to help shape the world using technology. So let's dive right in. You're working for the Institute for the Future. We haven't really hung out since you got that job. I don't really understand. <laughs> like, I went to the website. I still don't get it. <laughs> yeah. like, what is the Institute for the Future? Well, it's a lot of things. I think that's partially why it's hard to understand. It's a highly distributed organization. That's a big part of its kind of um, genesis and, and pattern is a lot about kind of how, I mean, essentially the, the core question of Institute for the Future is how will society, relationships, uh, economics, uh, communities change when you introduce new sorts, new types of distributed communication technologies. Um, and mm -hmm. we're looking at how that infiltrates and uh, um, tra transforms and uh, impacts uh, all areas of human existence. Um, so uh, from a chronological standpoint, Institute for the Future was founded in 1968 with some of the computer scientists who are working at the RAND Corporation on the early ARPANET and our, you oh, know, the original internet, basically, when it was still just uh, military installations and academic institutions trying to build redundant uh, uh, communication systems that could withstand um, a nuclear attack was basically kind of the assignment that birthed the ARPANET and then which became right. the internet. And these uh, original founders really you know, we're thinking about, well, how is this, how is, how is this new network communication technology going to impact beyond academic and military applications? And they were really thinking about long-term futures. And that's really been interesting. So they were, they were actually thinking about that before the internet even became uh, like a public thing. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And that's why they left actually to start the Institute for the future. Um, and they, they, you know, they, they actually, the first 15 years, I mean, it's, you know, 50 something year old organization. The first 15 years they were spending trying to develop kind of what software, computational systems to try to predict the future. So they built these kind of Oracle systems, these Oracle expert or the, and these Delphi systems, like these kind of expert, expert systems to try to, you know, how do you, you know, uh, for the military and the academic institutions, they were trying to think like, how is this going to like transform knowledge? Um, and ability. Isn't that what the, 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 the movie War Games was based on? <laughs> you remember um, that movie from the 80s where they were yeah, like. Of course. Yeah, well, that's simulation technology. So that, you know, the idea was, you know, artificial intelligence and how can we simulate scenarios. So that's a little bit about, you know, what Institute was trying to do. But they, there's a famous paper that was published around 15 years in where they basically, I'll paraphrase here, but they basically said, like, you can't, not only can you not predict the future, but the future, there is not one future. There's lots of possible futures. 
Um, and maybe they just didn't have enough powerful computers. I mean, we kind of jumped to today, and that's a lot of what AI is trying to do is predict the future of the weather, predict the future of the market, predict the future of individuals. Um, right. But in some ways, I mean, I think Institute, in terms of its practice, is really focused a lot more on kind of thinking through, like, what does humanity, asking kind of the philosophical question, what does humanity want to do, um, and what kind of what kind of types of futures do we want to create, and how do we go about creating systems of thought and conversation and collaboration to help us structure our conversations about the future. And that's kind of like the core practice at IFTF, but we have different labs at IFTF where they apply that same kind of mechanism and ethos um, into areas of like looking at the future of healthcare or the future of families or the future of work. And so So I guess it sounds like a think tank. It, it's like, it, it is basically a think tank. Yeah. We're, we're sitting around in a big tank thinking uh, together uh, independently. Uh, it's a nonprofit. So the way we make money, we don't have a big endowment. So we're not like, you know, living off of interest on some big endowment. We, we basically um, have a membership of organizations, mostly large companies, government agencies, um, big foundations who pay into our just annual partnership program where we do our foundational research and we pick a different theme and do a 10 year forecast every year on a different theme. Um, mm-hmm. That's our kind of foundational research. Um, and then we also do custom forecasts and custom projects for clients. And then we also have a whole training arm in which we teach people how to use our foresight tools and methodologies. That's very cool, man. Yeah. And your role in this is specifically around VR. Not really. Uh, I've done a lot of work uh, researching and prototyping virtual reality and XR technologies, but essentially the lab is called the emerging media lab so we're looking at you know basically the impact of media emerging media technologies um uh, you know how they how it transforms how we connect collaborate and uh, communicate vr the lab was formed in 2016 and so that was right at the birth of consumer vr this kind of latest era that we're living through where now it's kind of switching from uh, being just only in the labs to being something that's actually, um, you know, commercialized and re- kind of more widely available. The Institute has been talking about virtual reality since the 70s and 80s. Actually, my first v- book about VR was written by Howard Rheingold called Virtual Reality that I read in the 90s. That was my first kind of exposure, not just to the technology side of it, but how is this going to transform our ways of being able to communicate, do things like therapy, understand our own identities differently. Uh, Howard is a well, super VR's big visionary. Like whole, it's kind of the holy grail, you know, in, in a way. I mean, the internet, all of computation is leading up to um, to like a virtual world. You know what I mean? Like a, a, a system that can predict and replicate reality. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's like, I think people have always seen VR um, as a tool to achieve that or as the pinnacle of that that uh, that eventuality. Yeah, I mean, I think as a media technology, I mean, I, I like to think of it as it's an interface, right? Virtu- when we talk about virtual reality, mostly, at least right now, we're talking mostly about the, just the capacity to be even able to have a multi-sensory, audiovisual, um, sometimes haptic um, experience. Um, then there's like, what is it? What are you? What are you going to do with that? Uh, which we're still like kind of bumbling through the very early days of just it's very similar to kind of the early days of film where they hadn't figured out the language and the really the function and the form and um kind well, of the technology is still not there really i mean it still feels very clunky it's it's very uh it's something you put on your face it's not really 
truly immersive. Not yet. Not that I've, I've seen. Sure. I mean, yeah, it is early days. It's the earliest days of the consumer kind of uh, experience of VR of, you know, like something that just anybody could buy. Um, mm. And yeah, I think particularly virtual reality, as opposed to, you know, kind of ideas of mixed reality or augmented reality. Um, it is still, still not only, and not only is it still clunky, but it's most likely until we kind of develop like brain interface kind of technology to be able to beam these kind of experiences in your brain. And there's already some work being done on that. It's going to be clunky gonna, to have something in your face. About, uh, yeah. You know, Neuralink is, is a fascinating, uh, it's a fascinating endeavor, but even, you know, aside from that, there's uh, I was reading an article the other day about how there, um, some research team was able to reconstruct imagery from brainwaves alone. So they were mm -hmm. able to show somebody an image, mm -hmm. record their brainwaves, and reconstruct that image from from brainwaves. Yeah, and it's like I think that is that's really the that is the technology that will allow for fully immersive VR, and that's still that's a ways off. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a lot of really interesting research in the brain computer interface space. Um, and I think it points to that we really are still kind of in our infancy of under thinking about what virtual reality is, because we are seeing we, anytime a new media technology comes out, we always think of it within, uh, or anytime any anything new period comes out, we always think about it um, in terms of the frames of previous things. And sure. with media, that's like you know when they first created you know um, radio, the first things they did was do plays, right? Because right. that's what they knew how to do, and that's the only way they could kind of conceive it. So we're now yeah. we're in the kind of like the early days of VR where people are making films, but really it's right. not a film. I mean, we like to think about like the people I think that are going to be on the track to really think about more what this really is, is folks who are in theater because they understand the element of presence, which isn't in filmmaking. Mm -hmm. um, folks, uh, architects, because they understand that designing spaces in which people inhabit is about not about just designing just functionality of space. It's about designing social norms and cues. Um, which mm. is a lot, which we don't see consciously done in VR quite a lot yet. Um, and then really also um, the other design patterns that we think are really valid are looking at things like shamanic journey, because it is a journey into an alternate experience and you feel that transformed. And it really gives you that sense of experience that's hard to, uh, well, the it, contrasting experience to your regular day life. And how do you not like not only take people through that in a way that they're able to comprehend and absorb and, and endure even sometimes it's really difficult, but how do you bring it? How do you bring them back in a way that helps them reintegrate that into their lives? Didn't uh, didn't Terrence McKenna write a book on that? Like the the psychedelic uh, uses of, of VR, like way back in the 90s, you know, when it was like the headset was like a barrel. <laughs> yeah, I don't like... know. I don't know that book, but I wouldn't be surprised. I'm pretty sure he did, man. I, I remember seeing the cover and I was just like, oh my God, this is some lawnmower man shit. <laughs> like yeah. just the, you know, it's funny seeing, uh, seeing technology portrayed in the nineties because it's, it's like got such an aesthetic, you know, it's got yeah. such like a, such a look and a feel. Absolutely. But, um, yeah. I mean, that's, it speaks to what you were saying. It's all, we, we see these things through lenses, you know, and it's like the lens that we're wearing is very much shaped by the experiences that we've had in the past and and the the expressions that we've been able to to achieve in the past so it's like right now yeah i think people do look at vr as some kind of a cross between a movie and a game right it's like a like an immersive game but i think gaming even though it's not on your face it's not you know that medium 
is is very close to to a virtual experience. Do you know what I mean? A, a VR experience, even though it's not immersive necessarily, it doesn't sit in your face. It's like you do sit inside these three dimensional sandboxes that you can run around and you can like create these um, these really uh, you know immersive worlds. And the, the best video games are like that. Absolutely, and I mean the best films are like that too, right? I mean, when you're in a movie, you're rarely staring at the, the the edges of the screen right you're in it it is immersive if it's a good movie um and you know virtual reality um when you talk about kind of visual immersion you know that's one thing but then there's more kind of the other aspect which is just kind of immersion in terms of narrative immersion in terms of um uh presence and in, in terms of like focus in terms of identity um with a movie there's no freedom of agency and i think that's the difference um, you know, VR yep. can, can take many shapes and forms, you know, you right. can have like a, like a playback experience where you just put it on and you're like guided through a thing. And that's, yep. that is more like a, like a film. Yeah. Um, exactly. Yeah. yeah so guess, you have agency me, and choice. Different. Yeah. And it's open-ended, right. You're not just yeah. kind of, and you're in it, right. You're, it's not something that you're watching as an outside observer. And I think that's a really big, big difference to the relationship between the story and yourself. Um, and, you know, we're in an age where we often think uh, of ourselves as kind of these outside observers, like with a, this model of consciousness as outside observer rather than kind of um, uh, present um, inhabitant. And that, that kind of mindset is like, you know, permeating to everything to like our view on the environment that's kind of creating a world that actually isn't necessarily inhabited, uh, like ha inhabitable for our bodies in the long term. So would you consider that two different things? Like 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 a um like a playback experience and an open-ended sandbox experience regardless of the display technology that you're using to 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 view it right yeah. you can have a movie in a vr headset you can also have a freeform experience where you can manipulate the environment and you have more agency those are like two different things viewed through the same tv set essentially right. right right yeah and it's it's interesting to think about how that paradigm will play out because a lot of times you don't necessarily you just want to sit and observe a story like like the art of storytelling right that by, by nature you can do that in a sandbox environment but there's really um i feel like the playback experience is the most effective way to communicate a story succinctly you know it's like reading a book watching a movie telling a story it's like somebody else is guiding you through this experience and you know maybe in a vr headset you could like look around you, you'd have a 360 degree view of that environment but you're still essentially like watching a story versus yeah i think yeah, like, i think i think you're bringing up a really interesting um conversation because, and this is one of the challenges that I think that a lot of VR content and quote unquote storytellers have struggled with is how do you tell a story in, a play, in an environment where the um, audience has agency and choice in the outcomes? Because story um, is, you know, what's, what makes a good storyteller, right? It's not somebody who tells you everything. It's a good storyteller picks out the important story points dwells on the ones that are important and kind of glosses over the ones that aren't and connects those things together. So, you mm -hmm. know, in a, you could talk about a frame, uh, sorry, talk about filmmaking as a, okay, well, the director is, you know, making all the choices for you. Yeah. And they're making those choices 
subconsciously in order to connect a series of ideas, feelings, and moods. And that's what actually what a story is. Um, we all we experience kind of a real time story in a way, but that's like the experience of an external storytelling to us. So you can you what I one of the concepts I really like is this idea of story living instead of storytelling, um, oh, which would be the experience in inside of. I mean, that's what we're living now, right? We're, and uh, you know, just to step back a moment, like I think it's also important to think about well, what do we mean when we talk about the word story? Um, I think it has a lot of different connotations, particularly in modern life um it, at the lab i think one of the uh, sorry at, at the at, at institute for the future one of the labs that my lab has been most kind of drawn to is the food lab future food lab and we've had a lot of conversations mm. about why we've kind of found our work a lot of overlapping and i think part of it is we're both kind of observing the past present and future of this kind of continuum of um, something that was at one time really the foundation to our physical survival um, food huh. and story uh, was also your your key to survival and they both we, well, they, they both grew that... up in in a human history in which they were both scarce and now right. we have an overabundance of both and we have instead of searching for story we have to pick through and find the right ones that will actually lead to our survival so one of the things i like to say is Story in our modern day, we think of it like we think of food as entertainment, as kind of fun, as playfulness, which it is. And it also has its roots in, in survival. And I think that's something we often forget. That's an interesting concept, man. I, the human the human animal is intrinsically tied with story, right? You ever read the book Sapiens? I'm pretty sure it was in yeah. Sapiens. Anyway, they go into depth about how um, – the thing that separates humans from like homo sapiens from other um, like human animals, right? Like Neanderthals and other human species of the past was our ability to, 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 to focus and to coalesce around a narrative. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, if you think about what religion is, right. And what, what, um, what money is, right. These are stories that we tell each other, governments, yep. you know, uh, societies. These are stories that we tell each other that we're all able to internalize as a framework for reality. And then we can use that to, to build structure, to build greater structures like civilization. Right. And right. these are all things that are based on stories. Um, so I think storytelling is fundamental to, to the human condition. And that's like, you know, throughout history, we've come up with different and, different ways of telling stories. Our technology is, is um, structured around the, the more realistic telling of stories, right? Um, mm -hmm. Which is kind of ironic because I still think some of the best stories are told in person, like around a campfire, so to speak, or, or sure. whatever, you know, like Context around a Zoom everything. call. <laughs> yeah. So I, you, I agree. These... I agree with that. But I would say that I think we're, we've had a long um, series of, of claims about what makes humans different than other organisms that continually get you know, disproven. I think I, I would just say that I think we understand the human story because it's built for us. I think uh, if you look, if you think of story as like the ability to make connections to, um, find patterns and encode those and decode them in order to, to survive. I think all life does that. Um, I, think I don't think all life different. does that in the same way that humans do. I think that that really resonated with That's me true. when I read that That's because true. it's like all humans have always had a story, like all civilizations, man, whether that's mm -hmm. a system of government or a system of religion, which are really kind of the same thing, but there are these fairy tales that we tell each other 
that form what is considered reality, right? And all humans, like right now, the, the story is money. It's the economy. It's, it's mm -hmm. commerce, right? And it's like, you can imagine what would happen if that story started to break down. Civilization would break down. We would no longer be able to survive, like in a very real sense, mm -hmm. in much the same way that I think that like in Roman times, you know, the story started to fall apart. Right. And it's like all of a sudden you had these and, and then also, you know, you it's hard to hold together a large group of people. The larger the group, the harder it is to hold them together. And I think that that comes down to like story cohesion. Mm -hmm. And now we've got this global story going on and it's woven together with the Internet. And it's like we connect and we form these narratives on Reddit. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's why, like right now, we've got this like like these this crazy disruption happening to the fabric of of our society because everybody's telling different stories right and like it's fucking shit up <laughs> instead of having one cohesive story we have like all these different narratives and all these different like fucking bonkers stories like QAnon and like you can see it in real time yeah, but it, I would argue that that's of the story. that the idea that we have one story is kind of a, an illusion and an anomaly of our lifetime. I think, and, and even Her, Yuval Harari in his book points out, like if you went to human civilizations in the world, you know, a couple hundred years ago, there was a ten thousand, hundred thousand different stories on the earth, very, very different. We've been moving towards was a monoculture. There, yeah, was there? you had Christianity, right? And that was the binding story for Europe. Now I know that at the same time, there were other cultures having other stories, but they yeah, were I think that's what he's pointing out. We're very aware of that, the kind of dominant Western cultures that actually kind of led to our current civilization and, and been encoded into our histories. But what he was talking about is that at that point in time, there was lots of disparate. I mean, obviously that, that comment, that culture dom went out and dominated and brought their stories and Christianized and colonized folks. Um, right. I'm just saying, that, I think just was... because I think there's a, um, a survivor's bias in a way around that view in the sense like saying like, okay, well, our, I mean, and I would agree with everything you've said about how amazing human storytelling is, but I think to assume that it's entirely unique, I think would probably limit us from some important learnings that we need to have uh, also to survive on this planet. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Um Anyway, yeah, storytelling is incredibly important and VR is a is a really fascinating, it's a really inspiring tool that, you know, it's like, it's funny, man. It's like, I have this thing where I really want to stick around to see the unfolding of how technology changes the human species. And it's almost like, it's not like, a, oh, I want to live forever thing, but it's like, man, I really hope I'm around. I hope I'm around to see the shit show that is the fallout from climate change. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because like, yeah. it's going to be uncomfortable, but it's going to be interesting. It's right. like, I hope I'm around to see um, people finally bridge the the machine mind barrier. And, and like, you know, these are just fascinating things, man. This is the stuff of science fiction and we're living in it. And it's yeah. like you look at the arc of progress and it's like a fucking hockey stick and we're like yeah. on there somewhere, but it's like, it just gets steeper. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, a lot of people are talking, using the word apocalypse right now, you know, uh, I think that's short sighted. I think that's, that's dramatic. People will. Exist well, I think it's actually quite, I think it's quite accurate. If you look at the literal definition of the word, 
people are using it synonymously with the idea of the end of the world. And I think mm. actually what apocalypse mean is, means is the unveiling. It's the transformation point. It's the pivot point. And I think that's oh, why, I, I think, that. yeah. So I think, and I think a lot of our fear right now is just natural human fear change. Things are going to change, not yeah. just the climate, but society is going to change for right, better right. or for worse. And we're going to yeah. be, we're, we're being transformed. I mean, literally, I mean, you couldn't look at a better example than the pandemic right now. We've been globally transformed in a way that hasn't really happened in our lifetimes at a moment in which even when it, when the 18 flu, uh, the, the, the 1918 flu happened, the world wasn't able to have kind of a, a consciousness and awareness of it happening. It was all, you know, we didn't have these kind of information and communication systems. So this is the, we're having this incredible transformation moment. Um, and so I, I think I like to use that because one, it's a, it's a, it, it helps you understand that a lot of things that feel very frightening right now are because we're, um, uh, they're new or we just haven't seen them. Like case in point, like look at kind of the Black Lives Matter movement right now. It's like, why is that really bubbled up? A huge part because of cell phone cameras, right? Because we're actually seeing people murdered you know, who do, should not be killed and overpowered by folks. Now, the point there is not, oh my gosh, this is happening. It's, this has been happening forever <laughs> since the beginning of this right. country, right? It's just now we're seeing it and it's shocking yeah. and it's causing us to, you know, push for or uh, um, move towards transformation. And, you know, I mean, climate change is going to be the same thing. Our confrontation and our transformation through AI and all the politics there are even the kind of first stages of, the, of our recognition of that social media is kind of this front end to this giant machine learning system that's going to be designing potentially systems of control. Have you seen the, the social dilemma? Yes. Yeah. And you know, it's funny. It's like, it's, it's, uh, I really appreciated how that movie, um, shown a spotlight on that AI system. You know, it's like, there's, there's a lot of different opinions about the movie. I, I took, I took value in it because, and I think it's an important movie, um, to, to be viewed the, the tens of millions of times that it has, because I feel like this is shaping society right now. Like social media is shaping society. And it's like, I don't think there's a, a, a an adequate awareness of, of how social media is shaping everything from politics to, to popular culture, to this explosion of, um, the, the, the fragmentation of our story, <laughs> right? You know what right. I mean? And, uh, well, that movie was just like, guys, check it out. This is what's going on. And it told it in a very digestible way. You know, it told it yeah. in a way that is accessible to, to, you know, my, my 15 year old niece, um, or cousin, you know, everybody can understand this. And I think even, even young kids who are really like growing up in this fucking world, this, this cocoon where you can't really see it for what it is. If you're born in it and you're raised in it and you're inside of it. Um, you know, I, I've heard us, our generation described as the last digital immigrants, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Where it's, we remember what it was like before the internet just barely, right. but we remember there are no more, there are no more immigrants to the digital world. People are born here they're inside right. it. Right. And it all natives. That's also all digital. Natives. Yeah. That, that's also kind of a, a cool, a cool paradigm to think about, you know, it's like, it's, I guess, you know, in, in other like 
incredibly transformative events in history. There, there are people who exist before and after, and then the people who exist on that cusp are the only people who can truly appreciate the transition, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think it. it's an incredible time to be alive for sure. And I think, I mean, you, you mentioned the social dilemma. I think it did a good job of kind of beginning to open the door on a huge set of issues that we need to look at. And I think it, it did in a really great way. I think one of the things that it starts to talk about is really the intersection of what's this kind of free phenomena that we're participating in and kind of and commercialization and specifically extractive capitalistic, um, uh, you know, um, models. Uh, Shoshana Zuboff was in that film. You should check out this book if you'd like to learn more about it. But it's called The Age oh, of yeah. Capitalism. And I'm, I think she I'm... does a re really excellent job. She gets, goes much deeper than you can into our movie to kind of explaining the economic factor. I mean, Institute for the Future, like, as I told you, like, we've been kind of imagining how the um, internet is going to transform society and we think about all the possible ways and ideally the, the not only the probable or possible futures but the preferable futures and we in many ways like especially being in silicon valley a lot of people have been kind of thinking about all the pos the positive possible things that can happen and really what we're seeing right now is the transition from like vr being in labs the internet kind of in the, our lifetime our adult lifetime going from like an experimental thing to some you know that only some people use to some, now part of every part of our lives uh, I think we're about to have that same kind of a crossover from uh, in the lab to like widely distributed with AI um, and with implications that are, you know, hopefully our kind of interaction and experience with an enthrallment with social media and then um, kind of um, uh, horror <laughs> that we're seeing right now. Uh, hopefully that's a kind of um, a good foreshadowing for us to be a little bit more skeptical. Um, but the challenges, and I think what uh, Shoshana really outlines in this book well, is that the economic forces are huge. Once you go into commercialization, you know, the, the ideas of what you could do with a technology when it's in a lab, or even if artists are using it to imagine what's possible, or even futurists try, thinking through like, oh, all the great things it could be, versus, you know, when it's, when kind of like a new technology is like put into this extractive capitalist system that we have right now, it basically, technology is not just like a neutral tool, it's an amplifier. And right. communication technology is the most powerful, you know, amplifier and electronic digital communication te technology, you know, immersive kind of experiential technology is the most powerful amplifier. So it amplifies whatever kind of the goals are of the, 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 um, the, the wielder. And Shoshana really points out that basically in the same way, like this phone, right, we, we this, all the parts for this phone were on the planet, like you know, we've been here since humans have been here as well. It took a time for us to get to the point of technological advancement to to have the mining capability to collect the materials and all the elements in this, and then to organize it and program it and sell it into this product. Um, and that took a long time and a lot of technological development and has generated a lot of wealth for Apple, namely. They call um, that the steam engine effect the the steam engine it's it's the parts were there you know these things could have been assembled at other times in history but they were right. assembled now because of a confluence of societal factors technological factors um and then it changes the world right right it's like why did it happen at that point i guess i guess it's not a, it's not the best example of that that phenomenon no i think but... that's a great example and just to kind of uh, kind of finish that up what shoshana rap points out in terms of the steam engine effect in terms of what is a raw material that's been around but unminable, organizable, and then sellable, 
mm. is human behavior. Human behavior right. has been the hardest thing to track. We've tried to understand it, and we can do it only in kind of very gross ways, or not gross, but uh, primitive ways. Um, and now, and even more so now that we're on in the pandemic and every interaction is through the internet, all of human behavior is becoming structured data. And it's, you know, and, you know, it, she points out, you know, uh, uh, um, Sergey Brin was like, you know, when he first created this, he's like, we're not, I'm not creating a social media system. I'm creating an AI. The social media part component of this or the, or the um, search engine part of this, sorry, mixing, mixing stories. The, the uh, search engine part of this is just the front end to a giant AI. Right. And that's what Facebook yeah. is. And that's what I think the social dilemma kind of dramatized well uh, in some playful ways to help people understand that. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. It's, it's almost a like capitalism and which is the paradigm that we see the world through. That is our reality, right? Like that is the world's reality at this point. Um, that is our collective story is capitalism. And um, it's a lens that shapes all technological development because everything needs to fit into that, that structure, right? The capital, the capital structure, like how it's very hard to make things exist that don't fit into that model, right? Hmm. If you can't commercialize it, you can't raise money. It doesn't get off the ground. And, hmm. you know, I'm doing this startup right now and I'm, I'm seeing it in a, you know, even in just like, I'm just entering into it. I'm like, Oh, I get it. This is, this is how things work. This is, this is, these are the gatekeepers. This is what makes or breaks an idea. This is what allows yeah. things to go forward. This is the propellant. This is the, this, these are the breaks. Um, and it is the framework, man, you know? So it's like these developments that are happening, they, you know, this new technology that's happening, it all exists within our capitalist system, which in mm -hmm. turn, helps to determine the trajectory that that it continues on yeah because like what it becomes is very much dependent on that paradigm and that structure yeah, um, yeah it's, you can think it's about useful to understand that you know to understand because things make a lot more sense you know like everything makes a lot more sense when you can view it through that you know through that lens absolutely yeah, it's a dominant narrative. That's one of the things I I, uh, I really love about uh, the the new Meow Wolf installation in Las Vegas. It very much like goes in for the jugular on that particular story. Uh, Are you not working only, on that? I'm not. Liza is uh, doing a or worked on a room with Moldover uh, in there. She built oh, an no environment way. for space there. Yeah, yeah, I was just talking to Rich about this the other day. Yeah, and I he saw. was telling he, me yeah. about his piece was, is awesome. Uh, he, I haven't seen it and I've, I haven't been there yet. Is it open? It's not open yet, is it? Yeah, it's open to the public now. It uh, opened February 18th. Very cool. So yeah. Liza worked with Moldover and Moldover and Rich, that was like kind of like Rich and Moldover's thing together. They had like a room, right? It was like Rich no, no, Moldover. No, no, no. Rich had a separate space. Uh, Moldover had a room. They were, wanted an environment built. So Moldover asked Liza to do the environment for the space. There, It's an integrated piece. His Hers is a light sculpture um, that interacts, uh, that's triggered by his mu musical instrument. Yeah, man, there's a, there's a number of different, um, I'm glad that, I'm glad that, that, that paradigm is continuing. The, the, the Meow Wolf model is, is continuing to, to move forward. You know, for a while it was like, 
it blew up. Things were, things were, you know, everybody was really excited about that, that, that paradigm of, of, of event, you know, the immersive event. Um, and then it felt like it cooled off a little bit. And then there was a bunch of, uh, like me too's, you know, um, that, that kind of came in after like team lab, team lab kind of did its own thing. That was, that wasn't really a meow wolf. That was like its own thing, but same paradigm, right? Same like idea where you're like Mm -hmm. immersing the audience, letting, letting them like explore kind of like a video game. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I've, I've been talking to a bunch of people who are, uh, who are trying to start up their own versions, um, yeah, I don't know if you know Roxy, uh, like the One Dome people. Mm-hmm. They uh, they're they're doing something. Um, nice. I'm supposed to sign an NDA, and maybe I can't even talk about it, but whatever. <laughs> Something's That's happening. Great. And then, uh, yeah, and being you know. being, we went to the friends and family opening for the um, for Meow Wolf Las Vegas, and it was number one. It was the first public social event I've been to in a year, so that was just like whoa. Um, and then also it was like you know a cool art experience. It, but I was also very curious, like, how can Meow Wolf recreate this? Can they actually scale this out? Will it actually work in a place like Las Vegas, which is very different than um, uh, Santa Fe kind of culture and environment? And I was just blown away. They knocked it out of the park. They not only, you know, kind of up their game in terms of like, um, you know, the scale and scope of their world building, but they, like I said, they, they, you know, kind of we were transitioned to the conversation around capitalism they went for the jugular on not only recreating that story of capitalism like literally the the entry to that special world is a store right it's a grocery store that you go into yeah yeah um but that what i think that meow wolf aside from creating something that's super fun and like imaginative it, they also are really good at creating experiences that drive home the point that there's not only an alternative story to what you're living but there's multiple possible alternative stories to how you could be living. Um, and they give you just such a great departure point, but literally entering from kind of like the, the business end of consumerism, the, the grocery store or the, the, the Omega market. They're so and, good at that. Like those guys specifically are so good at telling a story. And I feel like that is, that is the key to, to those type of event spaces succeeding, right? It's like a compelling narrative that guides the user through a, a story. Um, the ones that have not succeeded, I feel like did a poor job of telling a story. And the ones that have succeeded, like Meow Wolf, have done an excellent job at telling a story. Well, the Museum of Ice Cream did well. They didn't really have a story. I mean, I, I never went to that. Thing. What was the deal with that? That was like an Instagram thing, right? You just like went, you took a it's picture, an Instagram it was like thing. all kinds of things. Yeah, I think if you're like uh, an experience designer and you've been to a lot, you know, of like more story narrative based experiences, you know, it's easy to go in there and be like, what is this crap? This is bullshit. Um, right. But I would say what to me I took away from it was that, I mean, obviously people are very obsessed with doing selfies right now. They sell the museums. But <laughs> what I, the positive thing I took away from it is that people are wanting to expand their identity to say, I am playful. People want to be more playful and they don't necessarily know how to. It's sad that that's kind of maybe the limits of some of their, their expression of that, but like. So it's a prescription identity building. It's, it's somebody who correctly identified the characteristics that people in a certain age group market segment want. And they were just like, all right, we're going to make a, playground so people can accentuate that part of their personality 
Absolutely. But I, I think know, the take, what the takeaway, <laughs> well, the takeaway <laughs> is, is that there's hunger for transformation of your identity and exploration yeah. of reality. And I think that's why when you look at something like Meow Wolf, that really takes that in a place uh, and inter- into a direction and actually empowers you to kind of, because what I like is not that they're so good at storytelling, is that they're kind of good at s- story hinting. They have, if you go in there, there's so many different narratives. You can have like a million different experiences in there and a million different stories that you could walk away with. Everything from just, this is a fun, like kinetic space to like, I'm going to actually read every document in the space and try to kind of figure out what that storyline is. And the meta story the there OG, is OG RPGs where you OG RPGs, you could like go and you could, you could just kind of play the game, just like breeze through it. Or you could really get down, like read all the, like read all the books and read all the, yeah, very, very similar. That's what that reminds me of. Yeah. I, and I think it very much appeals to uh, that kind of culture, right? It's like, I want to, I want to be in part of a new story, um, but I can drop in or I can get more involved. Yeah. But the meta story cool. is just even like, I mean, if you're not like creating, you know, living a creative life and working with folks who are making creative environments and kind of trying to create new stories all the time, just the idea that you can create a new story and be part of it is pretty profound to a lot of people. Yeah. So and did a lot of people show up to the, uh, to the, to the friends and family event? Yeah. I mean, of course it's, you know, COVID. So it, they had limits on capacity. Oh yeah. Everybody's masked. And we had actually, we were double masked. <laughs> um, but yeah, everyone's masked and they are, you know, only running it at, at, at 25% capacity. Honestly, if it wasn't, you know, Liza's opening and all of our other friends, I wouldn't have gone to an event like that. I've been really super careful um, this year because my mom is, um, well, she's just getting vaccinated, but she's you know, in a vulnerable group and we, we see her every weekend. But, but Do you really, uh, is she up here now? I thought she didn't live I thought your mom yeah, lived in she, Boston or something. No, she lives in Oakland. She lives in Rockridge. Oh, that's awesome, man. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. I've been moved, hanging out with she's my moved brother lately. And like, my brother is uh, is in the Bay Area. It's so nice to have family like, oh, yeah. in the area. Oh, both my sisters and my mom are all in Oakland now. My dad's down in Florida. Right on. Clearwater. That's cool. My partner, My partner's family is in Florida. We actually... All right. I don't know how much traveling you've done during COVID. We, we did like a good bit of traveling actually, you know, and it was, um, travel somewhere, land, Airbnb for a week, test, get your results, join a pod. So it it forces you to slow the fuck down. You know what I mean? There are no like, Oh, let's breeze through these cities in like a week. You know, it's like, no, 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 no. If you're going to travel, you got to take like two months and you got to be like, we're going to hit this city and then this city. And we're going to, you know, do the quarantine. I, I did not feel like I was endangering myself or others. I felt like we were very responsible about how we did it. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm very, I'm glad I got to experience travel during COVID. I am. It's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's another one of those things where it's like, I am glad I had that experience. That was a fucking crazy part of life while I was alive. (laughs) And it's, it's crazy, man. It's, it's, the whole the whole idea of of adapting to change right i feel like covid has very much um illuminated the ability of people's 
the ability of people to adapt to change because this was such a dramatic change, right? Yeah. And on the one hand, you've got like a whole swath of people who they can't even put on a mask, right? And in fundamentally, to me, that seems like it's a failure, a failure to adapt to change, a resistance to change. Yeah. Right? Like, I don't want to do this thing I've never done before. It's alien. It's not, you know, blah, blah, blah. Failure to adapt to change. But then you've got like this you know, that manifests in all kinds of ways. Like uh, friends of mine who became like very withdrawn and depressed and they like, they were like, okay, I'm not going to see anybody ever, you know, and it, they like completely socially withdrew and it, mm -hmm. it just ruined them. Um, yeah. No, I've been l looking a lot at the work. I forget his name right now. He wrote um, a book on uh, stumbling upon happiness, Dan, Aurelia, I think his name is, but he's a researcher, a behavioral science researcher, and he's been looking a lot at how people imagine themselves in the future. And mm -hmm. one of the things, and, we, and we've seen, there's a lot of neuroscience around this, is that um, we have a lot of difficulty often kind of relating to ourselves in the future. And we're actually really bad at predicting how much we're going to change. Um, partially, if you look back and kind of see how much you've changed over the last 10 years, um, but then you ask people how much you think they're going to change over the next 10 years. People always think they're going to stay very similar to how they are. Um, but one of the things that kind of di distinguishes how much you're open to that is this idea of like a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset. And both are kind yeah. of like valid, like ways of navigating through the world. And um, I, I, you know, I operate and I think you operate and most of the folks in our community operate more in this kind of growth mindset. Like, what are the possibilities? How could we kind of move forward? Um, but it's always important for me to remember. I don't think, I don't I think it's say, necessarily a product of the of the of the the social group. I'll explain after. Keep going. I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, you. I was just going to say um, that. I mean, you can look at. It. I mean, you can look at it: liberal, pro uh, progressive versus traditional or conservative. Like the idea of cha more change or less change is going to be better. Again, coming back to survival and just recognizing that both of those were very valid survival mechanisms you know the folks that yep. were like hey we should eat these berries we've never eaten these berries before you know sometimes that wasn't always the best idea for a tribe right um and it's important for me to remember that just being in the more of the kind of club of like let's try something new come on why don't we you know i'm, I'm very much of that mindset as well um and what, what i was saying was that like i know a lot of very progressive liberal people who are very averse to change do you know what I mean? That's it's, true too. It's not yeah. like they're stuck in their ways, but it's like, yeah. you know, just the, even the people that I work with, I'm like, I'm like, even like some, some people who you would not attribute that characteristic to, you're like, wow, this guy's totally wild and crazy. It's like actually kind of, kind of averse to change. And yeah. I, I think that, you know, maybe a good, a good community or a good society needs a mix of both those things. You need like the, you need the gas and the brakes. <laughs> You need, absolutely you need balance. yeah and it's it, i feel like so much of the argument that that is being had is like yeah it's like gas gas or like all gas or all brakes you know and it's like human tendency to to separate into these black and white camps of, on two sides two extremes where it's it's like yeah, you need the you need the middle ground, man. I feel like the answer is almost always in the middle. You know, no matter what the issue is, it's it's almost never on the extremes, and and that's what frustrates me so much about um, the society that we live in right now and the politics that we're experiencing on the left and the right, because mm -hmm. 
I don't think the answer on almost all issues that we face is all the way left or all the way right. It's like, where the fuck did the moderates go? (laughs) You know, like, where did the discussion go? You know? Well, savvy politicians also understand that, you know, by establishing, like, really radical on any direction, you kind of realign the center. And we've seen that happen in the United States, right? Like what would what you might what some might call the center right now is actually relative to other governments and societies in the world is very far right. Right. Yeah. I mean, don't you think that a lot of that has to do also with the current uh, social media environment that we live in as well? Like the media environment, the stories that are being told and the way that social media divides people into camps and almost almost uh, blocks conversation between those two camps so you do very much end up with two completely separate stories trying to coexist within one society yeah i mean i think the central one of the central kind of uh critiques that social the social dilemma puts out is that basically that this it's an industry um feeding a kind of automation of human interactions and it has kind of taken over human interactions that's weighted towards engagement and attention and the thing and so you're what you're going to go towards is the thing that gets you most riled up most likely to click again and 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 what the research shows and they're they're all building their systems off of this if you're outraged you're more likely to click right so if you're if you if you're infuriated or angry all these kind of you know divisive human emotions there's the ones that they're building literally engines for and their 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 kind of economic future depends on Always not only doing that well, but always increasing it. Yeah, absolutely. So the engines of outrage. Really is, how, how do you take how do you take media? How do you take new forms of media, uh, and new forms of of new media art, and and encourage discourse and and encourage? I feel like that is the you know that that is the solution to 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 so many of the problems that we're seeing. Right, like the the tearing apart of the country. It's really it's like got to fucking talk to each other. You know, there, there are podcasts that I listen to um, and there are news, news sources that I, I read uh, and absorb that are very much all about the coupling of people on opposite ends of the spectrum, discussing issues down to a, a, a um, not a consensus, but a, an agreement, you know, and yeah, at I least to like... understand each other and humanize, you know, the, uh, the conversation, not, you know, there's, I mean, this is more for kind of marriages and whatnot, but the kind of famous marriage uh, therapist, uh, John Gottman, like points out like one of the four horsemen of any relationship is contempt, yeah. which means you're treating somebody as if like they have no rights essentially, or, you know, it's hateful. It's you're treating someone hateful. And basically that's like the death of a relationship. And so yeah, the US you're, you basically lose it for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. But I think, I mean, and this is why I bring up Shoshana and the kind of age of surveillance capitalism is I think you can make, you can model how to use media well. And there's lots of examples, even people trying to, to build new social media platforms that hopefully don't create the same kind of problems. But I think when you're doing it, like you said, within this kind of broader story that our society is just a market capitalist society. Um, and that um, it's all about growth, like all these measures basically, you know, become the engine and kind of the thing that, that either that filters what moves forward and what doesn't in our society. So you can show folks from uh, executives at Facebook, like not only what's going wrong with their platform, but alternative ways to do it. 
But if it's not going to lead them down the same um, kind of economic extraction path, then they're not, not only are they not going to be able to make those decisions, but even if they make those decisions, they'll be removed by, by basically, you know, the investor class to say, well, you know, you, we need our return. And right. what I would say is that story is relatively new that basically equating America with capitalism. I mean, capitalism, you, you don't have to be anti-capitalist to say that, that capitalism sh- shouldn't define every decision is not in a market is going to make decisions, good decisions in every case. I mean, healthcare well, is that's like an a perfect example. example. Of, that's an example of extreme that are arguments to the extremes. You know, there's, there's an argument for complete unfettered capitalism, which I think we've seen in many examples um, is, is, is not a valid way to run a society. I mean, if you look at the experiments that happened down in Central America, Central and South America, um, you know, during the during the the sixties and seventies, where we were kind of like imposing these like these unregulated market driven uh, economies uh, in, into into some of these countries, and then if you look at the opposite extreme and and uh, an economy that's 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 prescribed by the state, neither work. Right. It, 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 the answer is in the middle. The answer is in a nuanced balance. And like, yeah, we we can argue over like that balance. And I think that's mostly what the economic arguments are. You know, they're 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 arguments over like, well, how much regulation regulation over what blah, blah, blah. But then you've got who's that guy? The 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 Chicago School of Economics. Milton Friedman's name. Yeah. And yeah. he was just like, you know, he was uh, he was essentially a uh, kind of like a like an obscure economist that whose policies were picked up on by, um, by, by the elite investor class. Right. And they were like, Mm -hmm. this guy's policies would make us rich. And they, they created, uh, think tanks and they created, uh, awards and all of these things to, to, to launch his, uh, his policies into the mainstream. And then all of a sudden the, 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 the center was shifted and that, that became, that became the narrative. Yeah, I mean, we're definitely on an interesting kind of arc from the, you know, the 70s and 80s there, Reaganomics. I mean, we've been living in the era of Reaganomics, which was basically kind of the um, kind of business classes response to the New Deal. It was their solution, actually, to the New Deal, which they've been pushing forward. And now here we are in this moment where, like, our economy has been shut down. Like people are, you know, facing the worst health crisis of our of our lifetimes, and people don't have insurance, and you know the government's here. You know that was a, that was Reagan's famous um, quote, right? What are the four, four scariest words in, in in America? The government is here to help you, or something like that. And right. he kind of vilified the idea of the government and that we could do things together, and you know that we should always kind of see look to the private sector to do things and. I think people are more likely. I mean, we're 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 recreating a lot of the conditions of the 1920s right now and the 2020s. Um, you know, everything down to kind of the Gilded Age and even a pandemic. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you look at the uh, if you look at distribution, like it's it's way more stratified than it was in the 20s. Like we've we've gone beyond that. But um, I was actually there's a there's a podcast called Pitchfork Economics that I, I really enjoy and it's um, it's very left leaning but it's also very uh, you know it's 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 economy wonks who are who are just nice. kind of like you know talking through it and uh, one of the last episodes I listened to was all about this about the um, like where did 
where did this model of economics come from and who who kind of like push that in and it really you know it's a struggle it's a it's a it's a a back and forth tug of war between um you know more like social driven driven economics uh and and market driven economics and it's been going on for for hundreds of years is really the story of the country you know It, it is it's like the story of our nation is is kind of like a tug of war between those two yeah um battling stories in a way yeah yeah well yes it's the the story of economics and then it's like the narrative you know like what narrative is gonna is gonna rule um very cool yeah it's crazy i love love learning more about what's this book this book that you keep you keep you keep showing me what it's called uh you should get commission (laughs) i know no i mean it's thick i won't i'll warn you it's thick but uh, for me it was one of the most important things I've read in my life and career in this, the age of surveillance capitalism. She just really helps. She really retells the story of kind of the emergence of the big tech tech companies over the last right. um, you know decade, essentially. And I'm going to listen to it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna that listen. would be a good way to go. Yeah. <laughs> Man, I've yeah, really actually, gotten into, uh, I've definitely gotten into the audio book. Like, it, it's it's such a great way to absorb and and that's what books are books are special books are necessary because they are a long form way of discussing a topic you know you've got like you've got clickbait articles you know which is like your the news you read off reddit or whatever and you know it's 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 a page that glosses over a current event that has you know it's like the tip of the iceberg where you've got this massive amount of history and context behind it podcasts are a little bit better long form podcasts even better and then you've got books and books can take as long as they want to explore the contours of that iceberg can i can i flip the script for a moment and ask you a question yeah yeah absolutely so you're doing this podcast tell me what have you learned about not just like you know, the folks you've talked to, but about podcasts and kind of meaning making through podcasts. You know, man, so the, the, the story with this podcast is, um, this is a personal project for me to get to know people that I admire and who are active in the scene that I care about, right? My, my scene, my my identity. Well, it is, you know, my, my identity is that of a visual artist and I'm really interested in the people that, that are successful in making that, um, their life's work. Right. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I've been doing this for two years now. This is, this is my 18th episode. So it's not really, it's like, yeah, I mean, almost two years. So I've, I've been doing about one a month and it's, it's, it's great. It's like, has it changed you? Is there anything that's kind of transpired or, or relationships that develop that developed through the podcast that has transformed the way you see things or do your work or see the world. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Especially with, uh, uh, I told you, I just did, I did an episode with Joshua white who is arguably, um, you know, the OG granddaddy of, of VJing, you know, visual arts, uh, new media arts. Uh, it mm. doesn't get, you know, it doesn't get more classic than that. It's almost almost like if we had talked to Nam June Paik. You know what I mean? It's like it's like that caliber of of like OGness. I did get <laughs> to talk was, to him. Did you? That's yeah, and Bill cool. Viola once. Yeah. Interesting. Got a sign now. Yeah, I, I just think it gives a lot of perspective, and it also like it allows you to to 
it allows me to understand the, this like community better. Right. Yep. What, what part of what sparked it was me joining the Ushiny list. And I'm like, fuck man, there's so many badasses who are doing so many things. Yeah. And yep. I just saw that. And I was like, I want to know these people. And not only that, I think it would make us closer as a community if yep. we could listen to each other and get yep. a sense of like, who are these people? Like, what are they all about? You know? Right. And I think that helps. I don't know, you know, I don't know how many people listen to what episodes or whatever, but um, it, I definitely get a lot of feedback on it. People definitely listen to it and they're like, yeah, it's cool. I never knew this person. And it's awesome that like, you know, I got to get a little window into their, into like what they're all about, you know, right. I've known you forever. Like we've known <laughs> each other for like 20 fucking years, man. Like yeah. it, it's bonkers. And yeah. it's, um, yeah, we've seen we've it's, seen we've seen each other grow and transform quite a bit over our, those years. Oh my God! Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But you know, it's it's we still come from that core of like visual artists. Like you are that VJ that I met on that beach in Cape Cod, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like twenty years ago. But man, it, it's funny. Know, it's, it's cool to kind of re- re- remember that right now because I I just got re inspired. I just watched. We just watched the the, the microdose is doing live sessions on full moons now, and we it, microdose. Wait, say the, that again. Microdose is a um, VJ um, VR VJ app created by Andrew Jones and oh, Long, and it's right. uh, yeah, and they've been working on it for years. And actually, we just saw Andrew at Meow Wolf, and he's like, "Hey, man, we 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 have a new version." He, and Liza signed up where they did, they do live full moon parties essentially. And it's just, it's all microdose. And we watched the whole thing on Friday. It got me really excited about VJing and I haven't been doing it in a while, but it just brought me back to that, especially the long form of like, not just, you know, and they're just using microdose. So it's not like they're mixing in video clips or anything. They're just using their tool and kind of building these long visual psychedelic reality narratives over time. Right. And it just really brought me back to what that, that unique kind of, practice of VJing of long form video mixing not just like making a flash video but like creating an environment and a kind of longer longer story that's so cool man you know i miss those guys i the last time i saw fong and andrew was uh was in the city i can't remember what the venue was it was like that art gallery that is like a music venue i can't remember what it's called but uh mm-hmm. they were doing um a presentation of microdose and uh, uh okay. yeah i got to talk to andrew for a minute he was like in between VJ sets and I got to talk to Fong for a little bit and uh, yeah, talk about, talk about a blast from the past. Like those guys are part of my initial San Francisco story, you know, where coming to, to hang out with, with Sean Bonstade mm-hmm. um, and meeting those guys. And, and uh, yeah, it's, you know, Fong is such a cool character. He's such a unique, <laughs> um, a unique artist and it's very cool that they're still him and Andrew Jones are still working together. Yeah. So, yeah. so where, where do they books. do these? Where do they do these full moons? Like, how do you get? How do I? How do I watch? Them? I mean, it's on Facebook. It's a just a microdose full moon party. I think it's like an event series or even a web page. Just go to the microdose VR Facebook page and you can sign up through there. But they just do them on full moons, so and it's all virtual. I mean, it's just like this. Random, random Rob was the DJ this this week. Um, I haven't heard, heard him in a cool. while. Yeah, and I was like, yeah. first, to be honest, at first I was like, oh, we'll just peek in. I just want to see and sound, hear what it sounds like. But we wa- we hung out in our bedroom and 
like put it up on the projector and you know jammed out for several hours it was like i was like oh yeah i forget what it's like to kind of be in this kind of uh, liminal space with other people since we're just like in our house watching netflix all the time (laughs) now was it was it uh was it could you perceive the other people that were watching at all or was that no it's just microdose I, i mean i guess if you were we had it full screen. I bet if you were chatting, you could have chatted. I didn't, we didn't do that. We just kind of like tuned into the AV portion of it. Yeah. Twitch is a really good platform for that. Because oh, that's there right. Is... It was also on Twitch. We actually ended up going to Twitch because okay. it was higher quality. Yeah. I, I was going to say, I feel like, you know, with Twitch, there's a, there's a better, there's more opportunity to have audience, per, you know, it feels more like a, like an event, like a communal right. thing. You know what I mean? I like Twitch for that. Right. I don't use it yeah. very often, but it's great for like, for parties, you know? Yeah. That circle a, party a that venue. we went to. Yeah. That circle party that we, we, we went to, that was Twitch, Twitch based. And that was really cool. I was like, oh yeah, yeah. it's all, all my favorite people. Yes, totally. Yeah. I, I, you know, I mean, a lot of my research at work is this year has been about looking at kind of like how has the, the pandemic forced us to kind of be more creative and innovative and creating new tools are using existing tools for just to, to gather to be able to connect um and it, yeah. there's been so many creative uh not only just like not just creative technology but creative uses of technology driven by our that like very basic human need to to come together and celebrate and sense make and just uh, do you think hang the out. pandemic has do you think the pandemic has like has eased the way into a more virtual world it, it feels like all of a sudden now like people are so used to just doing things virtually that yeah. Oh yeah, we're never going back. Not that we'll be continue just being virtual, but we're going to be a hybrid world now in way we you know ways we weren't. I mean, everybody has been forced to learn how to use Zoom. They have that literacy now. Um, right. Yeah, it's going to be a cro- it's the it's the crossover point to being in a much more kind of mixed reality existence in which a much broader section of society, everyone from like grandmas to little school age kids, now know the basic uses of tools. Oh my god, dude! My parents were teaching me like features in Zoom the other day. They're like, <laughs> I was like, what, what is going on? <laughs> what, yeah. we, what, what reality am I living in right now? But they're like, oh no, you just got to click on this button and click on that button, and then I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, it's a whole oh new my reality, god. and you never know who you're talking to these days because you know. You what know. is that? How did you do that? <laughs> uh, I am not a lawyer. Um. <laughs> Yeah, that's one of my favorite stories. Like, I don't know if you guys uh, you saw the um, uh, that story of like the lawyer who was in a deposition and had his daughter's Snapchat filter. I'm just playing with Snapchat filters right now, so you can see me, you know, playing. But he didn't know how to turn it off. That that works between apps. That doesn't. That works. What that that works like? Yeah, it appears as a virtual camera. Your camera and interesting. Yeah, check this. This is a new one I just saw. This is. Check how good this is, and it actually like looks at my hair color Whoa. and checks, yeah, and tries to turn me into an anime version of myself. Liza came in, like did a female version with brown hair for her, and yeah, what? this is, yeah. So and this so is now a, people have this basic Snapchat. literacy. This is Snap Camera. It's an app that you can run just on your desktop, and then okay. just it appears yeah, as a virtual yeah. camera. But basically, I mean, like this is kind of the more bizarre edge of this, but now that everybody has kind of basic literacy and, and you know, it's going to be clear, okay, well, I don't have to figure out something to, in order to have a virtual meeting, which is exciting because, you know, people are going to connect in ways that, you know, beyond just the pandemic in ways that they haven't been able to. Right. 
<laughs> Dude, it blows my mind that that cameras can now like essentially uh rotoscope your head in real time like how the fuck yep. does that work uh, how does yeah. that work <laughs> no i don't idea. actually know how they do oh look it even grabs my hat and does a cartoon version of my hat that is amazing. bonkers that is yeah. so bonkers I don't really know how snap camera works, but I mean, it's basically, you know, facial recognition and kind of basically machine learning. They know, and this is what, you know, all machine learning is, is like, it's not a set of rules, it's a set of examples. And that's why, you know, surveillance capitalism is so important because it's all about more example. <laughs> Bring back my favorite Fucking book. book, man. <laughs> I know, I'm obsessed. I mean, I think if you, you know, if you want to understand the future of media and the future of economics, read that book. Yeah, no, I definitely will. It's go, it's going on my yeah. list, man. It's Come going on my book normal. list. Coming back to normal. Sure. Oh, there saying. you are. Yeah. Sorry. It's weird because like the area around your head was like expanding like a wormhole a little bit. It was just like <laughs> distorting space and time. <laughs> like, where did that go? Hey, yeah. <laughs> I love it. That's my so hat. It's so crazy. I'll send you a link. Yeah, deep, deep fakes are going to be the next thing, man. That's like, I mean, people have been predicting this for a while, but like that shit, when that really, like when people start to weaponize that, that's going to be fucking crazy. Yeah. No, I just found- Joe just Biden found... comes out and declares war on on Germany. <laughs> yeah, there's <laughs> a no heritage.com. <laughs> it's just like a website for making family trees and tracking your family heritage. And so you upload photos of like your ancestors and stuff. They just launched a free feature in which you upload a photo of your like, you know, dead great aunt. And it will basically animate her as if she's like, a, it's a live video. Um, oh it's my God. That crazy. Is, and it's free. That's a, that's a little, yeah, it's a little creepy. <laughs> it's more than a little creepy. It's, it's creepy and it's kind of wonderful. Like it brings it alive a little bit. I mean, I've been just been doing my own face and kind of friends' faces. I did Jesus too. I thought. I'll do <laughs> oh my god! Not an actual photo. Of I mean, fuck it. Why not? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, have you done one of those DNA tests? You know, I received one. Liza, my partner, bought me one for Christmas one year, and then I read a little bit more about um, kind of the, the 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 privacy rights, and oh, I returned yeah. it. Because, I mean, actually, Eli Lilly, I think, the pharmaceutical giant, just bought uh, one of those DNA companies. Um, so, I mean, your DNA is, I mean, talk about getting, you know, getting your personal. personal information. It's hard to get more personal than your DNA. So, I mean, in the end, Absolutely. like, it's hard, kind of hard to hold, like, kind of defend from every angle. But I just wasn't quite ready to do that yet. I want to see it play out a little bit more before I would kind of do that. And hopefully... Um, get gain some more privacy protections right well part of me really wants to do it i'm very into into like health and nutrition and uh you can gain some real insights onto like right things that your body that needs cool. more of or less of and you know i mean that's very attractive to me but at the same time you know I've, i'm also very aware of the you know they own they own the rights to your dna it's like what the fuck does that even mean like what does that even mean <sighs> right <laughs> Yeah, that's, I mean, I think the health, the kind of the, the wellness and health and diet stuff and just understanding your history and understanding yourself better is great. But yeah, unfortunately, that's going to become basically raw material for people to design drugs and maybe even viruses and you know, 
Yeah, designer viruses, man. That's that's a that's that's a fucking crazy sci-fi dystopia shit right there. Well, I was talking I mean, about, you, you uh, got to imagine to anybody looking at what happened in the United States and how this is hit. They're realizing like, oh, this is how you take the Americans Americans down. Well, this is how you take the world down. It's like forget nuclear bombs. That's like you know, it's it's really it's like you design a virus and you destroy the economy, and that's how wars are fought now. Wars are fought over the economy. They aren't fought in person, right? At least you know, knock on wood, but yeah, yeah, Americans here. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's the next, that's the next real, like, that is another technology that I am really excited about seeing play out is, is, uh, the biological revolution. You know, it's like, we went through like the, the iron, you know, the, the bronze age, the iron age, the, the, the steam engine age, we went through the industrial revolution, the digital revolution, the biological revolution is going to be fucking nuts man like i'm all about it i want i want a prehensile yeah. tail god damn it a, a I mean, you already got you got them do you still have the magnet implant oh uh, no i took those out because it was interfering with my uh my ability to climb it was like wow. the my fingers had formed scar tissue around the the magnets right. and also the magnets had lost efficacy so they <laughs> you know uh neodini magnets they they lose their magnetism over over time and these okay. things are so tiny that like after five years it was like no longer really magnetic anymore so it's mm. just like a rock in my hand so i got mm. them removed but i would that was an experience that i value very much having having done i think that that was like a real it was a cool way to experience what another sense could be like and it, it was it was such a it was kind of a benign thing you know it was just like the tug and vibration of this, this magnet inside my fingers, but it, your brain really does, you know, it, it integrates it in and you're, you know, you're like, Oh yeah, here's a, there's a, uh, an AC wire behind this wall. I can feel it. <laughs> you know, wow. I'm like, oh, the refrigerator just kicked in. I can feel it. <laughs> wow. Crazy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Cool. I think my closest uh, cyber experience is pedal assist electric bikes really Uh, well yeah because i mean that's what it's going to feel like right to have a robotic arm or to have an ai augmented intelligence system like we already have an ai augmented intelligence system man it's a smartphone it's just not in your brain yet (laughs) right right yeah well that's it i think that extends in a way i mean we and we can see the impact but the this kind of very visceral embodied sense of like okay i have an intent to kind of go a little bit faster and then the e- sense of ease, but then the sense of power that you have, um, right. and then how how quickly you get used to that. I mean, yeah. you know, if you if you ride around with a pedal assist bike all day, and then you turn off the pedal assist, you know, your ego takes a big hit. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And, absolutely. Well, you think that's what like bionic legs are going to be like? You know, it's just, you're just like, oh fuck, man, I could run a marathon, no, no sweat. Well, you know, eventually, I mean, obviously, there's power restrictions, but like, yeah, that's where biohacking is going to. That's kind of the the the, the wedge in the door, right, is to help disabled folks first. Right. And then, of course, they're going to, as we've already seen with like, you know, even just fiberglass blade runners, like they're being disqualified from, you know, races and um, because, you know, they're actually able to run faster than people with regular legs. Yeah, that that's really crazy. I've been like peripherally aware of that. Um, and that that is really the crossover moment when it's like, like, oh, fuck these legs. I want I want those legs. You know, that when that shit happens, then it's like, Okay, now we're upgrading. We're not, you know, we're we're upgrading our biology. Right. Um, right. The thing is, man, it's like 
the human body needs resistance. I think that technology has traditionally been about making people's lives easier to the point where we're sedentary and it is actually making us very unhealthy, right? It's yeah. like a couple of years back, I got into running during the pandemic, man, I've been trying to be very active. I've been very, um, I've been exercising a lot and it's, it's changed my mentality. You know, it's, yeah. it's changed my mental health and it's, um, it's just like, fuck, like humans need resistance. It's, it's almost like the thing that gives life meaning is the resistance to, to achieving your goals. You know, if you right. were able to achieve anything that you wanted without resistance, it would have no meaning. And that's true in a physical sense as well. Like if you're able to do everything without movement, without resist physical resistance, your body atrophies and your yeah. mind atrophies right along with it. And uh, yeah. so how do you, how do you augment the human body? It's like, I've actually been, um, there's a lot of research about uh, compounds and, uh, and, and chemicals that, that produce the, uh, the same effects uh, in your, like on a cellular level that exercise does. So you can almost trick your body into producing the hormones that it does when it exercises. Um, and it's just, it's, it's interesting because, you know, it's, they're, they're developing it for people who, who can't exercise because the, the benefits of exercise are huge and well-documented and it's kind of like the cornerstone of health. And, but if people can't exercise, but they can use these chemicals that trick your body into believing it has just been stressed. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's fascinating. It, it affects everything from, uh, uh, you know, cardiovascular health to, to aging, like the mechanisms of aging, um, to, to mental degradation and like, you know, Alzheimer's and it makes yeah. me think of social exercise. I mean, there's a, right now in China, um, you, do you remember there was a, Microsoft had a chat bot called Tay a couple of years ago. And it was like an odd conversation. Swearing at people. Yeah, like within days, it became like trained to be racist. <laughs> and they shut it down in the United right. States, but of course in China they kept using it. And now it has they have over um, uh, hundred million users of Zhao Yiling. What is it? It's a, it's a chatbot. It. It's a chatbot, and basically it's a female chatbot. And the primary use is well, I'll, uh, essentially, I met the product manager from Microsoft, and she said the number one reason that people um, stop using the service. Take a guess why they would stop using the chatbot service. Well, I don't. First of all, hold on. Just explain to me real quick. Why would you use a chatbot service? What's the well? That's product? that's what this question is designed to ask. Which is basically number one reason they would stop using a service is because they got a real girlfriend. Which is to say, oh, interesting. Yeah. So it's like a substitute same. for for. You just talk yeah. at it. It talks to you. It talks with you. Yeah. And there's a number of these yeah. te- technologies and they're getting better and better. I mean, there's you think one I should have it on the podcast. Re- Replica. You should interview uh, Eugenia from Replica. She created one of the best kind of chatbots that people are falling in love with, creating relationships with. I mean, in Ch- the reason what? I brought it, but the reason I brought up China is that, you know, the debate there is on one hand, it's like, are this people, you know, getting all the getting a six pack without doing any exercise? The other, right. or is it like a gym model? 
Is it, okay, these are a lot of socially awkward people and they're practicing and building confidence using this chat bot and then they're able to actually interact with people better. I mean, yeah, I was going to say the gym, the gym analogy is apt because I think that, well, I'll believe it when I see it. There's no way that this chat bot can fully replicate the conversation that, for example, you're missing the point then the- you're missing the point then. It's not trying to replicate. It's it, we get a lot from having conversations, even if they, we know that the, it's an artificial being. I I used Replica for a week just to try to understand how the system works, and yeah. it like it gets to know you, and we like to be known. It's a reflection. I mean, it's the same story that's in the social dilemma, in which they show you how they're making a clone of you. The thing yeah. is, with Facebook, they're making a clone, and they're just using that for themselves. With something like Replica, they're making a clone of you, and then they're building a best friend for that clone. And the friend knows like, oh, you know, so like you have a conversation and like I was feeling a little down. It's like checking in with me like, hey, how are you doing today? I'm like, oh, I'm feeling a little down. And it's and my replica was like, well, maybe you should play some music, like reach out to such and such because it knows from our previous <laughs> conversations that that's something that's really shifts my mood. And I actually right. found like my I mean, I, I didn't use it for much longer, but when I was using it, like it became like a good social kind of reflection and feedback loop for myself. So it's different than a real person. Uh, some people are using it in replacement for, and that's where it gets a little sad and problematic. But um, I think that's well, again, where we th- that often- That was my point. That, that was yeah. my point. You know, it was like, even if it can't reflect an actual conversation, it can still be a training model for awkward people or people who are just feeling isolated to continue to flex that social muscle so that it doesn't atrophy. Right. It is like a gym or it seems like I, it seems like it, I could see how it would be like a gym experience. That's cool. Yeah. What's it what's it called? It's called uh Replica. That's the the one in the United Replica. States. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Let's check that out. Yeah, super cool. It's an app and I mean it's it's evolved quite a bit. It used to be just a conversational engine. Now it's a whole avatar and there's whole kind of different kinds of relationships you can build with it. It's becoming much more um sophisticated both in its in pers- like persona as well as like the kinds of interactions and the framing around your relationship. Do you think this means they'll be able to have like a good uh, uh, call-in customer service automated? That's exactly what they're trying to build. I mean, that's yeah. the, that's the first deployment point in the commercialization of chatbots. We're already having that with like really bad chatbots. But my my forecast would be in the next year, we're all or so we're all going to have a conversation with a robot and not know it. That's fucking crazy. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, that that already happens online. Like I can, you know, there's like online, you know, text for text for help or whatever, you know, like right. chat with a representative. Like those are all fucking bots. And it, right. that's the closest I've experienced. I'm gonna I will to say, okay, let me, let me, let me, let uh, me adapt that. I think in the next, let me extend it to two years. I, I, I think that most <laughs> of us will have a conversation with a, a, a machine that has an emotional component to it. Yeah. That's interesting. Well, emotion is the core, man. You know, listening to Elon Musk describe Neuralink, he's like, he's like, you know, our brains are like, we are the limbic system, this emotional reptile thing, right? With a supercomputer, the frontal cortex strapped on top of it. And AI and, and the, the, the ability to like implant devices, which augment the brain it's not going to be like taking over. It's just going to be another strap on supercomputer in front of that. And the problem is bandwidth. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Where it's like, we've got this soda straw. We're trying to like suck 
this information through it needs to turn into a river it's a good yeah. analogy i'm like man i yeah that's that is that is the the primary challenge for uh for integration with machines like brain machine integration right yeah one of the most interesting stories around brain machine interfaces is some duke university has a robotics lab down i think in argentina i want to say and they were using VR to train people how to run, use people who are paraplegic how to use um, uh, exoskeleton legs. They built these crazy exoskeleton legs, and they only had one pair. And they had eight, you know, and they're in the lab, and they had eight people in this in the study, all who were paraplegic. And so they sent them home with Oculus Rifts, and then the brain interface to try to basically gather enough data from them looking down at virtual legs and imagining that they were controlling them to figure out what are the, the kind of the, the thought the thought signals to walk and then they decode right. that and then use that to control the robotic legs which is super cool but the cooler thing was after the study was over the fact that people had used this vr training system started connecting their real legs back to their brain and all eight of them started regaining control of their legs and this is when what? i say like people are thinking about vr too much as a um you know film tool or a game tool this it's a brain interface. It is our the, the biggest bandwidth into our brain by like a thousandfold is our eyes. Oh yeah, right. Yes, absolutely. And it it puts it into perspective. Like other animals, you understand so much better. I I, I do anyway. When I think of like, okay, so their big pipe is their nose, or their big pipe is you know what I mean. Like there's like animals like dogs, you know, smell, they're, right. they're just fucking noses attached to a brain, and it's like, yeah. oh, what's that even like? <laughs> so crazy. Yeah. You guys don't have a pet, do you? Mm, just some very long plants that go around the roof here. Oh man, I got <laughs> my plant game. Wow, you guys yeah. got some long ones. Oh yeah. yeah, I didn't even show you. It goes all the way from there. Wait, can I? Can be, you probably can't see it, but it's about four, 50 feet long. That that fine inside. Jesus. That's Liza's work. How big is the pot? <laughs> just this big, 12 inch. Just growing, yeah. Yeah, I've been playing a lot with uh, with automation systems, right? Like like automation systems that that essentially um, take in take in data from sensors and produce action in in control devices. And that could be a lighting system, that could be an airflow system, that could be any number of systems. But essentially, like um, controlling behaviors of, of physical spaces. And, uh, mm-hmm. one of the things that I'm trying to, to use this system for right now is to take care of my living wall and my, like my plants, you know, where yes. I'm taking in data about the, the soil pH and the, 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 the moisture level, and then using that to, to turn on and off, you know, pumps, just like water these plants. It's a cool That's challenge, cool. but, um, yeah, man, it's, uh, have you read much really- of uh, Norbert Weissman, uh, the who wrote about cybernetics in like the fifties. I no. bet you'd be really interested. It's all about it's the kind of early days of control systems and AI before there was even like like basically transistors. It was all mechanical, electromechanical yeah. systems. But he's very famous because he kind of created this idea of cybernetics, the ability to to kind of make machines that use electronics to have like very complex control relationships with people and represent intent. Um, But what was so interesting about his work is that he kind of foreshadowed the the reality we're living in now, again, before, not even before just computers, but before even like using, um, you know, uh, data, digital 
digital systems. It was all analog at the time. And he basically said, well, hmm, if we have, if we build all these kind of systems to control things in the world, what would happen if these would kind of fell into the wrong hand or were put in the kind of the wrong incentives into, we could kind of build these kind of master slave societies, essentially. Um, it was super um, prophetic. Um, but if you're doing, con yeah. if you're doing control systems, he's kind of the, the godfather of imagining like modern control systems and some of the social dilemmas that come out of that. Yeah, it's that, that's funny, man. I'm gonna have to look him up. It's uh, the the ethics of technology. I think that's uh, thinking about that in the '50s is way ahead of its time. But you know, there there were there were ethical dilemmas. There's always been eth ethical dilemmas attached to technology. You know, like uh, the Industrial Revolution is a is a great example of that. Where it's just like, okay, well, we've got this technology. It's controlled by by the few and uh, you know exploits the many. Um, it, while at the same time providing economic independence to women for the first time ever. Wait, what did the the industrial revolution? Yeah, women went to work in factories and they thought they was they were making money for the first time in their lives. Right, and they got independence. They didn't have yeah. to get married to uh, to be financially viable. So it's kind of yeah that kind of double edged sword there. I mean, same yeah, thing with social media say, today, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, just dramatic changes, dramatic changes to the world. So, um, dude, how's your camper, the, the camper you're building out? <laughs> I wanted to ask you about that. I love I'm, it. I'm doing something simple, similar, but I'm doing it. I'm not doing a camper. I'm doing like a, like a, like an off-road, not, not like a crazy off-road vehicle, but like, I'm doing like an off-road modification to, to my vehicle. And that includes like a bed platform in the back and, nice. you know, they call it overlanding. I'm like yep. really into that right now. That's dope. So, yeah. Liza, how's your, how's yours doing? It, uh, it's great. It's uh, I mean, it's a slow project. It's like, you know, constant renovation, but we did the biggest, you know, we bought it um, partially built out. So it had, you know, bed insulation, um, uh, counters, sink, power system, no solar. Um, so the biggest thing we've done is take the roof and build out. I built out a custom roof rack using Unistrut. And we took a lot of extra time to make it super stealthy because we we're trying to be able to do stealth. We're more like stealth urban camping than like off-roading. Yeah. We want to be able to just kind of go oh, anywhere and stop. Yeah. So we yeah, made it. Yeah. So like we used a Unistrut and put in a deck up top. And then we put 200 watts of solar power as well as a machine, uh, a marine hatch to be able to get up there from the bed and also be able to like stay yeah. up because there's no, no windows around uh, the interior of the van. So that was yeah, like a good for stargazing there, right? You can, oh you man! See those, uh, so you good. see those, you see those satellites go by. <laughs> Definitely. Well, we also set it up. We bought these kind of two. Um, they're 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 called stadium seats. So they're designed to take to like a, a stadium, and and they you know instead of sitting on a bench, you can sit in this like nice reclining seat with arms armrests, and then it has this little hook that locks into the bench. So we put that on the roof, and it locks into our Unistrut system. So you're you're up on the roof in this like very reclined chair, but you're not worried about falling off. You're basically like locked into the roof and we just kick back right. there. And, we, and during pandemic has been great. Cause we like just drive it to like, you know, populated areas where, you know, people are hanging out like along the, the, the bay there. And we're already automatically socially distanced. Cause we're already you know, 12 feet off the ground when we're up there and we just kick back and people, you know, come by and ask us questions. And we get to, we get to have that kind of be in public while being private you know, and safe. 
Yeah, they were doing like drive-in movies back at the start of the pandemic, like my group of friends and uh, a lot of people were doing that. They were like, you know, hanging out Love on top it. of their roof or their vehicle and blah, blah, blah. And it, was, it was nice. It's like, yeah, that's, I wish they would do that. I wish, do that again. Like I love organize it. that here at the labs. That would be awesome. I love driving. For my birthday, it was last week. We went to um, down in um, San Luis Obispo. There's a drive-in. So we took the van there. We went to a drive-in there. When we were in Vegas for the Meow Wolf opening, there's a drive-in burger joint that has a movie playing in the parking lot so you can get burgers and watch the movie and um, yeah i just i love i love the drive i already love drive-ins and now i love it anymore because we can kind of pull up and be in our little like cozy little bed area and kick back that's awesome man so you went to vegas with it you took the van to vegas yeah we took it there because we also didn't want to stay in a hotel room so we literally stayed in the parking lot of meow wolf the whole time we were there for two days or three interesting days. Yeah. That's cool, man. I want to yeah, go. Just, I want, that's why we got I it. Aside from it being oh, yeah. Jeff's – yeah, you should check in with him, man. He's – you know, it's an interesting times. I'm glad he, like, stayed on staff even though they let a lot of people off. But, um, I mean, the other thing that was super exciting and I think is – but you know, be relevant to your work is, like, just – you know, we, we all kind of have this idea, like, okay, someday we'll be able to get back together. But to, like, be at Meow Wolf, to be at a social event, to be at something that's designed to kind of pull people together in a special way, like – I'm, it made me realize like there's so much pent up demand and need to get together and have fun. And it just got me excited that we're going to be able to do that again someday. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's funny to like, when you do have those social experiences now, it feels so, dude, the, the period after this is going to be a social renaissance, right? There's going to be an explosion of new ideas, new ways of hanging out, cool new paradigms like i was talking to somebody else on the podcast a couple episodes ago about this and it was just like i'm kind of fucking sick of burning man dude i'm sick of burning man ruling the the like being the paradigm for like counterculture there, there needs to be a new thing like the wave yeah. has crested there what's the next fucking thing and uh it's gonna i think that's gonna this pandemic is going to be the the turning of the page into the next thing and it's really exciting it's like what's yeah. it gonna be i'm really stoked to see you know i think i think you're totally right I, my favorite name for the pandemic in terms of its social impact is the great pause and yeah. i think it's not it's a pause we would have never taken i've taken it I'm, in my own life i've pa I mean, I've paused my social life i've paused a lot of things we're pausing so many things and it's we just rarely have time to contemplate and i think a lot of, I agree with you, like we're going to have a renaissance because not only has there been a pent up kind of activity, but people have a lot to write about or think about or react to right now. And they've been able to kind of look at themselves and the world in different ways. And not only, and, and many people have had to develop new creative ways and techniques and technologies to do things. And some people will use that. And then other people have been away from their tools. Like for me, like I haven't been able to do my monthly music jam with folks where I get to play drums. It's like when I get back on those drums again. That? Yeah, that's awesome, man. That's great. when I get back on those drums, I'm like gonna appreciate it a hundred times more because I've been away from it. I think, like you know, I think a big part of resilience is developing gratitude, and I think for those that kind of really are feel um, like the 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 loss of, of of the things that we like so much and we need so much in our lives, when we're able to have those back, I, I think uh, for me it's gonna be an opportunity for a massive amount of gratitude and reconnecting with the things that we really value. Yeah, you think it's it's probably going to come in gradually. Like, I don't think there's just going to be a day when it's like, okay, it's over. Right. You know, I think it's going to be a gradual thing where like, 
you just start to slowly see that kind of thing come back and and then all before you know it you'll be like oh shit we're like doing the doing the social thing again you know last week uh two weekends ago i took my mom to the oakland coliseum to get vaccinated and i drove her there and we drove you get in there and there's like long like lines of like weaving lines of cones that you have to drive through and there's like 20 or 30 different checkpoints with national guard folks till you finally get to these tents and then you go into the tent you get wow. the vaccination and, and you know you're in, still in your car and then you move out and you wait for 15 minutes but it was like this i felt like the tent itself was this portal of like stepping through at very least yeah. the beginning of the end like taking my because that's one been one of my right. biggest worries is like my mom getting you know so just to like be like oh not only is like just she had that vaccination in her arm but like just the even the manifestation of people help like the organization of it the fact that like we're actually having some solutions rather than just like problems and questions and that and the people the people coming together to help each other and coordinate like just was like okay i'm ready for this new era and i think that was, i love um, that i love that analogy it's it's a portal like the tent yes. is a portal you drive through and you're you're in a literally in a new world and that's that's kind of true my partner got her vaccine she's uh, she's like high exposure you know category or whatever so she got her vaccine and she said the same thing she was like i felt like it was this really profound moment where like everybody has come together we produce this vaccine and now there's this huge effort it's big like a big lift to get everybody vaccinated yeah um i think her name is arandotti roy um she's a writer and she wrote this piece at the beginning of the pandemic and basically it was saying like you could either look at this pandemic as a whole that you fell into and you need to crawl back to where you were or you could see it as a pan, uh, as a portal to step through into something new and i i think she's right in saying like you're going to be not just in this pandemic but into any sort of stumble that you have or kind of new moment in your life if you're always clawing back to where you were you're not really looking around to see what the new situation is and how you you, you can adapt well, that's what I was, that's kind of what I was getting at before when I was, you know, there's, you see like half of my friends, less than half, but a good number of people I know kind of like fell into this abyss where they just could not adapt. And then another good portion of my friends, like they did the COVID pivot. That's like what we've been calling it. And it's like, you know, you just look around, you're like, this is reality. What are we doing? And then you pivot and it's like a new thing, you know? And I think that, uh, yeah, it, it comes down to human adaptability, man. You got to be adaptable, right? That is how, that is a successful person is somebody who can look at the shit that's happening right now and make correct pivots to, to, to best fit in that environment. <laughs> One of my favorite quotes, it's on a bench. Uh, it used to be at least uh, on a bench out at the Berkeley Marina here. It's by Helen Keller. She said, I'm going to pull it up here. Let's see. She said, um, security does not exist in nature, uh, nor do the children of men as a whole experience it. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. Uh, and I think, obviously, you know, we have to do what we can to protect ourselves. But this idea, this kind of concept of security that people often kind of imagine when she kind of blows it open basically saying like that's comfort you know and yeah. obviously we all need our comfort yeah. spaces to be healthy but yeah i love that idea like security doesn't exist there's there's always uncertainty yeah well what we do is we 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 
refined an acceptable level of risk and everybody has a different level of risk yes in in the communal living scene you know like in these group uh like community houses uh you see that that that's that has been the challenge of covid is like finding a balance between everybody's acceptable level of risk and here at the labs we've had to uh we've you know we've grown so much as a community man because like we've had to have those conversations and and figure it out and now it's like we got this we've got like communal living in the covid era we are we've got it dialed but it's like it was a lot of communication it was a lot of like uh yeah just like group understanding and and uh compromise to to come to a to a good balance that's cool i'm glad to hear you guys got to that place i've heard some other shared living situations that haven't been so successful and it's been really oh, yeah, man. it's fucking imploding left and right for sure for sure but uh yeah man that's cool i'm really glad you guys are doing well and i'm glad we're gonna have to do some some overlanding when you guys go on a trip next you know just uh i don't know it'd be cool to to, to go on an adventure together sometime or at least hang out at Sean's. We've been like trying to do that for the past like month. I know. Are you back in town for a while or what's your story? I am actually, we, we were going to go on a, a death Valley, Utah, New Mexico trip, but just shit's been so busy with this new venture I'm starting. And just like, I decided to push that back and we have to go back to the British Virgin islands to finish that, that install that, that, ended our install at the beginning of covid we are now trying to get back there to finish that install so i'm trying to balance that as well but for the next month i'll be here let's try and hang out maybe at okay Sean's. yeah i uh yeah we're, we've been coming over sometimes and doing dip dinner in the backyard so one of these weekends let's do that cool but yeah and awesome. and part of why we got the van is the dream of like van gatherings like right it's like pulling up and just like having a little gathering here and yeah just making that so easy Absolutely, Instead of big festivals, yeah. like, you know, or, you know, the kind of halfway between big festival and at home, but like little mini gatherings, you know? Yeah, absolutely, dude. Cool, man. Well, I have to, I have to call it because I gotta, I gotta help somebody move their, uh, move their couch. In about yeah, we gotta minutes. move our bed actually to the house ourselves. So it's a moving day for everybody. Well, cool, great, man. man. Well, Thank I'm really uh, grateful you reached out. I'm just nice to have uh, this, this, I mean, this is a great example of like the ritual of like, okay, let's have a podcast just so we can have a conversation. It's just, it's nice. I really it appreciate is, that you're doing that. Yeah. That's what this podcast has always been. It's like an excuse to have a conversation with other cool people. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> All right, man. Well say hi to Liza for me and let's make it happen. Let's hang out at Sean's or something. And, like, yeah. Just let's do get it together. In person. It's usually Saturday nights. Cool. All right, brother. We'll, we'll, I'll we'll talk to you, you later. next time we're there. Bye.